Could free trade agreements like the TPP and the CETA bring economic benefits to partner countries, or do they merely facilitate a flow of wealth to the 1%? Why are these trade talks so secretive? What would partner countries be trading away in the name of boosting investment and trade abroad? How have the WikiLeaks disclosures affected the TPP talks? How would the Canadian economy be affected by the mechanisms in the free trade agreement with the EU? Is there a realistic prospect of these trade agreements being stopped? Coming up on the next hour, we will hear perspectives from two prominent trade watchers. Maryland-based Dr. Margaret Flowers of Clearing the Fog Radio will weigh in on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, while Stuart True of the Council of Canadians deconstructs the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. On today's program, NAFTA on steroids. Can the TPP and the CETA be stopped? Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 13, 2013. I am your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. When blogger Alex Heed performed this simple check from his location in the United States, he quickly discovered that his phone was being routed through a British Ministry of Defense, most likely being analyzed by GCHQ. Alex was using a prepaid mobile cell phone carrier. According to officials, because no ID is required upon purchase, then prepaid mobile cell phone users should have no expectation of privacy. We Are Change is joined by Alex Heed of HackMiami.org and FederalJack.com, who is a security consultant, to inform everyone how to determine what government agency is spying on your cell phone's unique IP address. Amazingly, using his own Android phone going through his settings and status, he finds out who his phone is talking to, so to speak, and looks it up to determine his phone is talking to DINSO, Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom. That's from video, How to Check Which Government Agency is Spying on Your Smartphone, from 21st Century Wire, posted December 11. The BLS admits that the U.S. unemployment rate that includes people who have been discouraged about finding a job for less than one year is 13.2%. The official line is that the U.S. economy has been enjoying a recovery since June 2009. How is there a recovery when 13.2% of the population is unemployed? The answer is simple. The Federal Reserve is printing $1,000 billion new dollars 
annually, and the newly created money is going into the bond and stock markets, driving them to high bubble levels. That's from the economic recovery is a statistical illusion. More misleading official employment figures by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted December 11th. ABC News reported in 2011, 35 years ago, Dale G. Breidenbaugh and two of his colleagues at General Electric resigned from their jobs after becoming increasingly convinced that the nuclear reactor design they were reviewing, the Mark I, was so flawed it could lead to a devastating accident. Questions persisted for decades about the ability of the Mark I to handle the immense pressures that would result if the reactor lost cooling power, and today that design is being put to the ultimate test in Japan. Five of the six reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi plant, which has been racked since Friday's earthquake with explosions and radiation leaks, are Mark I's. The New York Times reported that other government officials warned about the dangers inherent in GE's Mark I design. In 1972, Stephen H. Hanauer, then a safety official with the Atomic Energy Commission, recommended that the Mark I system be discontinued because it represented unacceptable safety risks. Among the concerns cited was the smaller containment design, which was more susceptible to explosion and rupture from a buildup in hydrogen, a situation that may have unfolded at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. That's from Fukushima. General Electric knew its nuclear reactor design was unsafe, so why isn't GE getting any heat for Fukushima? By Washington's blog, posted December 12th. One would never guess from Obama's remarks that he is the head of a government that for decades counted the South African apartheid regime as a critical ally on the African continent and that the CIA, which he now utilizes as a refurbished murder inc., assassinating perceived opponents of U.S. policy with predator drones, played an instrumental role in Mandela's 1962 arrest, which led to 27 years of imprisonment. Obama invoked the civil rights movement in the U.S., with which he had no association, and compared it to the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. The mass struggles of African-American workers to achieve fundamental rights in the battle against the system of Jim Crow apartheid in the American South led to a conscious policy by the American ruling class to expand the use of affirmative action policies and cultivate a privileged layer of the black upper middle class, elements of which were brought into the political and economic establishment. This policy reached its peak with the decision of big money interests to promote Obama's presidential ambitions. The aim was to exploit his status as America's first black president to mask the reactionary policies being pursued by the U.S. government at home and abroad. That comes from Obama and Mandela by Bill Van Alken, posted December 11th, originally appearing at the World Socialist website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu.
Representatives of the 12 countries negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership met in Singapore this week. In spite of the resolve of U.S. President Barack Obama to conclude negotiations by the end of the year, those negotiations seem to have hit a snag. They've also been haunted by releases from the site WikiLeaks, disclosing some contentious aspects of the negotiations. To help us navigate these talks and the agreement itself, we're joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers. Margaret Flowers is a Maryland-based pediatrician and an advocate for single-payer health care in the United States. She co-directs itsoureconomy.us and co-hosts Clearing the Fog Radio. She's been a consistent critic of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Many of her essays on the agreement have appeared at globalresearch.ca. Thank you very much for joining us, Margaret Flowers. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so um, we're, we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and the talks that have been taking place. Um, just uh, what, what can you tell us, uh, first of all, about uh, some of these leaks that have come forward uh, and uh, the impacts they seem to be having? Sure, the leaks have been very helpful, as your listeners may know, um, for the first time in the history that we know of this trade agreement, the text of it, has been classified. So we don't have access to what's in the text, what's being negotiated in our name. Even our members of Congress in the U.S. don't have, they have very restricted access to it. Well, 600 corporate advisors have um, full access to it. They're actually helping to write it. So the, the leaks have been helpful in confirming what we suspected was in there from um, what we've heard from you know, the trade meetings and, and reports from uh, observers. But it was great, you know, for us it was to confirm that the agreement is as bad as, as we think it is. Um, in November, WikiLeaks released a full chapter on the intellectual property. And even in our own Washington Post, which is a very conservative paper, uh, they said that it looks like uh, the, uh, the U.S. trade rep is trying to push through Congress policies that would make it through the front door, um, you know, if we had a democratic process. So it's confirmed us it's helped to... Um, get the word out because now even some of our, you know, more mass media is covering what's going on with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, so what these, uh, when it comes to these uh, intellectual uh, property rights, uh, could you maybe just disclose a, l- a little bit more detail, like what's sure. what's being said? I mean, what we um, the, they've been analyzed by several different groups, and and the basic consensus is that the the patent protections that are being pushed through in that chapter violate international norms. Um, for me, my, my particular concern is the impact on health care because the patent protections that they're trying to give would actually um, allow pharmaceutical corporations and medical device corporations to extend their patents inde- indefinitely through something called evergreening. They're also um, putting in barriers to generics in terms of not allowing um, a generic drug manufacturer to use uh, research that's even in the public domain to get approval for their for their pharmaceutical. And they're trying to really reduce any barriers to patenting so that um, they want to be able to patent surgical procedures, other types of procedures, plants and animals. It's really over the top. It's, it's really as if they're trying to patent and monetize everything so that they can control it. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. Really, We really need to be sharing knowledge and acting in the best interest of the public. Hmm. Um, now, it, it seems to me kind of hard to defend those sorts of uh, protections. 
Um, so, I mean, is, is that essentially at the core of why these talks are, are so secret? That's part of it. I mean, what's been interesting about a second WikiLeaks um, leak that came out just last week is it shows how polarized the negotiators are. You see that the U.S. on almost every issue is on one side and, and most of the other countries are, are on the other. And so what's being reported is that the U.S. is inflexible in its approach as these other negotiators are trying to do what they can to write the provisions so that they can protect their public and, and the environment. Um, and even in the Salt Lake City negotiations in November, we were told by one of the monitors that one of our U.S. trade representatives, Stan McCoy, was using really outrageous tra tactics to bully negotiators in the other countries into accepting the U.S.'s stance and not allowing their proposals to come to the table. We um, did launch a campaign to put some pressure on Stan McCoy and expose what was going on with that bullying and to say this really wasn't acceptable to us, that we really demand a respectful process that's transparent and democratic. And the protests that we have um, had going on in the United States, and I think the protests as well in the other negotiating countries, have been very helpful to kind of empower those negotiators, the non-U.S. negotiators, to stand up to the U.S. bullying. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the... Um in terms of like some of the other countries, uh, are, are they seeming to, to stand their ground, uh, or, or are there uh, any uh, wavering or, or relenting on any of these issues? I mean, somewhat. I mean, of course, we expect countries like Australia to often side with the United States. Um, there, you know, Japan has been trying to hold strong on the agricultural piece because they've had protests of thousands of farmers coming out. Um, concerned about what the Trans-Pacific Partnership will do to their to their farming. Um, and I think the smaller countries are trying to stand up, or, as we know actually from the notes, are, are rejecting these proposals um, that would provide these outrageous patent protections and um, other provisions that would be harmful to them. Uh, capital deregulation is another one, you know, being allowing uh, capital to move freely across borders really gives transnational corporations the power to threaten smaller economies if they, you know, those governments don't comply with the wishes of the corporations. Um, so the, the smaller countries have been standing up. It's great to see that. We know that in Chile, one of the trade negotiators quit their job um, in protest. In Peru, the parliament has been calling for the text to be released um, to the members of the parliament. So other countries are really trying to take a stance. Hmm. Now, another uh, aspect of this uh, agreement is the ability for, for corporations to, to sue the, the, in, the sue nations, the, the whole investor state uh, aspect of it. Um, now, how is that playing out in, in the context of uh, this fairly diverse uh, group of nations, uh, you know, which includes not only the United States, but some of these smaller nations, uh, you know, mentioned Chile, but uh, you know, also some of these uh, Pacific nations. Well, that, um, that aspect is a very grave concern, and, and um, we hope that WikiLeaks is able to get um, their hands on the text of the Investor State Provisions chapter, because um, it basically would give corporations the right to sue government if the policies of the government interfere with expected profits. This is an, an, a power grab that we haven't seen before. Um, we know under NAFTA how this um, this type of investor state dispute 
process has been used um, to force, you know, government to change their laws or to pass to pay, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and um, this is just taking it to a whole new level. So there's a lot of opposition to that within the United States, and even our members of Congress have been standing up against this insult on our sovereignty, and um, and that's another issue where the other countries, smaller countries in particular, have been concerned because. Vietnam, you know, if they try to protect their environment or protect worker rights and a corporation hits them with a multi-million dollar lawsuit, they just aren't able to handle that. It's going to cause them to change their laws. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what are – you, are, are, uh, are you aware of some of the, the corporations that seem to be uh, pushing this uh, agreement? The, can you characterize yeah, anything about yeah, them? Yeah, actually, we have a campaign called Flush the TPP. We were doing a little play on the – nobody could seem to remember the initials TPP, so we used toilet paper plus and, and a lot of kind of toilet imagery. Um, so on that website, on the tools page, we have a list of the corporations that are involved in the negotiations. There's also a website um, called something like uh, Business in Support of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that lists the corporations, and they're all the ones – that, you know, we love to hate, like Monsanto and Walmart and Halliburton and Pfizer, um, that, you know, these are corporations that all around the world really act with impunity to exploit people and, and protection of the environment. Hmm. Now, could you tell us more about uh, this uh, this institution in the United States uh, called Fast Track and, and how that's being used um I mean, with with all the the revelations that have come forward, is the, the fast track legislation kind of their ace in the hole, at least on the American side, or, or is that uh, becoming loosened in any way? Okay, so um, in the U.S. Constitution, our Congress is required to oversee commerce, and so fast track is something that uh, first started under President Nixon in 1973 or 74. And it was um, a bill which allowed, which Congress gave the president the power to negotiate agreements and sign them on his own before they came to Congress for a vote. It also restricted the time period for members of Congress to read these agreements, um, allowed no amendments and very restricted debate to 20 hours, and they're just allowed to have an up or down vote. So this is a process that has been used to pass trade agreements that have been uh, unfavorable ones in the public that wouldn't have passed through a democratic and transparent process like uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement and the World Trade Organization. That fast-track authority expired in 2007, and so President Obama has been asking Congress to give him that again, and he really needs it, we believe, in order to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership because if we do have hearings and look at the impact of this on our jobs, our economy, the environment, our health. Um, you know, it really won't pass public scrutiny, and uh, there will be an uprising. In fact, the former trade representative, Ron Kirk, when he was asked by Reuters why the agreement was so secret, said that if people knew what was in it, they wouldn't be able to get it signed. So the, the good news is that um, the U.S. trade representative and the president have been asking Congress to give them fast track since early 2012. We keep hearing promises of we're going to have it by December of 2012, we're going to have it by June of 2013, we're going to have it by October, and those dates come and go and, and no fast track. And again, we hit another milestone this week 
is the last week that our members of Congress and the House met before the winter break, and there was a strong push to get a fast-track bill before then, but none materialized. And I think that's in large part due to the pushback uh, by the population and the fact that members of Congress are standing up to the president and saying, no, this is really um, not the right way to go about this. We need to know what's in this agreement before it's signed. Mm. Uh, but we expect them to come back um, in January full force again and, and try to get another fast-track bill. So we're remaining vigilant mm. on that aspect. I wanted to, I mean, bring up a, another point. Um, I mean, Canada is also a part of these negotiations, and, and in our right. country, there's been uh, a lot of agitation, particularly from First Nations groups, uh, uh, against resource extraction, you know, tar sands, pipelines, fracking. H how do you see the Trans-Pacific Partnership, once ratified, impacting on, on resistance to those sorts of resource extraction, extractive industries? It would be devastating. I mean, um, it, would act, it would give transnational corporations the right to um, change local laws. So, I mean, there's a case going forth right now, as you're probably aware, in the St. Lawrence River area where a Canadian corporation called Lone Pine Resources incorporated in the United States so it could be considered a foreign investor and is suing, suing the Canadian government because fracking was banned in the St. Lawrence River area and this corporation was exploring that. They're suing for $250 million just for their exploring costs, but under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they could sue for loss of expected profits. So it would be a huge amount of money. And so we really lose our sovereignty. We lose our right to pass local laws to protect our land, our air, and our water. And so th actually in the United States, there's a campaign that has begun and, and we hope it gets stronger and spreads around the world. And that's where local communities are passing resolutions to say that if the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes forward, this law that's being negotiated in secret without our consent and has the right to change our local laws, that we won't obey it. We'll continue to try to protect our communities. Um, so we hope that that, that type of resistance, which is necessary, will spread. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret Flowers, uh, before these sorts of uh, mobil grassroots mobilizations can happen, people need to be informed. And uh, I, I know that you know there's independent media, you know, such as your own, uh, that are are doing their best to uh, to get this information out. But how are uh, I mean, wh what kind of information are people getting uh, outside of the United States and, and Canada? I mean, is, is there more awareness or, or less awareness in, in some of these other uh, partner countries? Actually, the United States has been slow to, to get onto the, you know, be aware of what's going on with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, we've seen protests in other countries. Um, you know, the health professionals and, and laborers in Australia and New Zealand have been protesting. In Japan, there have been quite a few protests um, in Malaysia and Peru and Chile. Um, so we started really pushing um, to get the word out about the Trans-Pacific Partnership about 18 months ago. And initially, when we would give talks, very few people, you know, had known, knew what the TPP was. Now we find that, that it, within the activist circles, at least, a lot more people are aware and it's starting to break into the media. Actually, we have a campaign going over the next month where people across the country are writing letters to the editor and op-eds uh, in their local papers to try to spread the word. 
Um, so I think that, you know, the other countries are aware. I mean, this is just, it's really, they're aware of what the World Trade Organization has done, and this is just a continuation of pushing for similar types of policies. Do you see any um, upcoming anniversaries or, or events or other opportunities where the profile of TPP can be raised? Yes. Um, so we just had an International Day of Action that we signed on to on December 3rd and had uh, 35 actions on that day in the United States and Mexico. And the next um, big days of action are January 31st is an intercontinental day of action for North America. Um, and so we've joined the call to action for that, and, and we'll be organizing those here in the United States. And then February 8th, I believe, is Australia and New Zealand are having days of action. So there are some groups in the U.S. already organizing to act in solidarity with them on that day. So we've really been um, pushing to do this education awareness. A lot of groups around the U.S. have been doing visibility actions. Um, holding banners over highways, standing on busy corners. Sometimes we go down to the train station at rush hour and pass out literature about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We have um, these nice postcards that anyone can download or order called OccuCards, and they tell about the Trans-Pacific Partnership in, in brief and give people links to resources. Um, so that's what we've been doing to spread the word here, and, and we hope that uh, our friends in Canada will do the same. A little over 10 years ago, uh, there had been uh, a lot of uh, mobilizations uh, against the so-called free trade area of the Americas, which extended NAFTA into, uh, well, the entire Western Hemisphere, just about, and that uh, pretty much got disrupted and uh, is no more. And uh, right. do you see TPP realistically suffering a, a similar fate? Well, that's our hope. I mean, we've been able, people have been able to stop, I think, 14 free trade agreements over the last um, 10 years, and look how long the World Trade Organization has been stalled, and what they accomplished in Bali was really meager. Um, so, yes, the people do have the power to, to stop these agreements, and even more so, we need to start going on the offensive and defining what type of trade we want to see our, our countries engage in and, and how the process to negotiate that needs to be. I mean, we we feel very strongly it needs to be an inclusive, open, transparent, and democratic process. And um, so that's our hope is to to mobilize to stop these agreements. We really need to end this era of rigged corporate trade because the the planet just can't handle that. Uh, you know, being able, for corporations to be able to pollute with impunity for the race to the bottom and workers. Uh, wages and conditions. We just can't allow this to continue. Margaret Flowers, before you go, could, could you just give us a hand and, and just maybe point us to certain resources, be they books or, or places on the internet where, where people can learn a little bit more about uh, what the TPP is about and, and how they can get involved with stopping it? Yes, thank you. Um, so uh, Citizens Trade Campaign, it's uh, citizenstrade.org. Um, public publishes information about the TPP, especially when there are leaks. Um, also, Public Citizen um, has a global trade watch, and they have excellent articles uh, that regularly they post. Uh, so go to Public Citizen. I think that it's um, citizen.org for that as well. But if you Google Public Citizen, it will come up. And then 
Our uh, campaign website, flushthetpp.org, has some articles, but more so it's an action website for all of uh, North America. So if people want to go there, they can find tools, they can post their actions on the action map, and we'll publicize them. Um, so those are the three I would recommend. Margaret Flowers is a Maryland-based pediatrician and advocate for single-payer health care, co-director of uh, itsoureconomy.us and co-host of Clearing the Fog Radio. And uh, she's, her, many of her essays have appeared on globalresearch.ca. So Mar Margaret uh, Flowers, thank you very much for um, sharing your time with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. On October 16th, the Canadian government, through the speech from the throne, expressed optimism that free trade talks with the European Union would be coming to a close soon. Media in Canada uncritically greeted the news as the good news that risked being eclipsed by the bad news of the scandals surrounding senators' expense accounts. Activists such as Stuart True, trade campaigner with the Council of Canadians, one of Canada's largest citizen interest groups, had a different take on the announcement. The week following the throne speech, the Global Research News Hour had a chance to speak with True during the group's annual general meeting in Saskatoon. I asked him about some of the rosy economic forecasts that would result from opening up trade and investment in one of the world's largest and richest consumer markets. These figures that are getting tossed around and have been for four years, $12 billion in, in GDP, um, you know, 80,000 jobs, $1,000 in the pockets of every household. I mean, these are, I mean, they're, gro they're grossly exaggerated for one thing. Um, and they're really not based on, on very, uh, you know, very not based on very hard data. Um, it's, it's, uh, there's been a, a study that came out from the European Commission, for example, shortly after that government study around the 20% increase in trade, the $12 billion, that found that, in fact, the benefits are probably more like a quarter to a third of that. So we're looking down at the $3 billion to $6 billion mark. But even then, we've got people like Jim Stanford at Unifor who've come out with a scathing critique of the entire model for, for judging uh, the benefits of this trade deal and actually suggesting from their own studies that it could that the job the job effect of CETA could be negative. We could actually see between 25,000 and 150,000 jobs disappear. Now on that point, I want to say, you know, whether you believe, you know, Jim Stanford's article or, or whether you believe the government the fact is, and this is a fact, um, recognized by free trade's biggest supporters, that these agreements don't create jobs, nor is it their goal to create jobs, right? This is about, uh, in, my, in, in our view, this is about making uh, minor tweaks, but significant tweaks in, in the sense of the effect that the agreement will have on our democracy in, in here in Canada, but uh, just minor tweaks to perfect what we think of as a rule of global power, I mean, uh, corporate rule, essentially. Um, it's an agreement to help take the government out of the business of managing our economies, our social economies. And there's going to be many more tools in this agreement for corporations to do that, to undermine our ability to buy local, for example. Municipalities are going to be covered by international procurement rules that are going to forbid 
um, by local policies. It's just going to become illegal, right? Uh, there's going to be extra patent protections, monopoly protections for pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, Harper said this when he announced the deal in principle in, in Brussels. He said, CETA is going to cost Canadians more money um, in these drug prices. So here we have a hard cost that's going to be felt by the public and our public health plans with no associated additional economic benefits either in Europe or in Canada. So, you know, we're very concerned about that. And we know that Canadians are opposed to that. We know that more than two-thirds of Canadians oppose patent extension in the, in the Canada-EU deal. So that's going to be hopefully very hard for the government to put, to put through. And finally, we have, you know, what's become known as a kind of corporate, the corporate power chapter or the corporate rights chapter in CETA, which is like in NAFTA, giving European companies the right to sue Canada when they don't like certain pro uh, policies, when policies interfere with their profits. So we're going to be welcoming a whole series of new NAFTA-like investment disputes against Canadian environmental policies, resource policies, even potentially um, decisions related to public services, because we do know that one of the big interests of Europe in the Canada-EU deal was how to crack open Canada's public service sector, education, water, health care, crack that open to private uh, privatization, right? Because they have a lot of private um, health, water, and other infrastructure companies that want to be able to profit from, from that in Canada. So we're very concerned about what's not getting reported about the deal. We've seen all the window dressing about, you know, beef, beef access, you know, extra beef meat exports to Europe, the fish sector, you know, probably some gains in there for the fish, fish sector. Do we have any numbers to go with that? Well, yeah, they're, they're talking, they've been talking about 50,000 tons of beef, for example, um, which would be the quota that Canadian beef farmers would be able to ship to the European Union without any tariffs. Um, but, you know, we don't even know if they're going to be able to meet the, the non, what they call non-tariff barriers, which is basically European consumer preferences. One, they don't like hormones. Two, they don't like beef that's been washed with lactic acid or other chemicals. And these are the typical practices in Canada and North America. So we don't know yet how the Canadian beef sector, which is producing stuff that Europe doesn't want to eat, how it's going to be able to meet that quota that it's been given in the EU trade deal. So there's all these kinds of, we've got the window dressing. We've got these flashy numbers like 50,000 uh, tons. But what is it going to mean at the end of the day? We don't know. Um, in the fish sector, we know that tariffs are going to come down almost uh, on basically everything. Um, and that, apparently, there is, there is support for that among um, Atlantic fishers. But at the same time, it, that comes with costs as well. So they're, they're going to lose the right to ask uh, for minimum processing to occur within the province. And, of course, that's an important area of value added for, for uh, the fishing sector in, in Newfoundland. But there's also um, other implications, and maybe this is getting too much into the details of the, of the agreement, but we don't know how the Canada-EU deal will affect other sustainable fisheries policies in Atlantic Canada. So policies that are really designed to give maximum benefit to the communities who are doing the fishing. So down the road, are we going to get uh, sued by European you know, corporate fisheries, for example, because we're continuing through our policies um, to support local, the local fishers first, you know, make sure that the benefits are going directly to Atlantic Canada. Um, we think, and there's been a good study by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that talks into exactly how that'll happen, 
But in CETA, Canada is going to be extremely vulnerable to trade challenges and investor lawsuits directly attacking uh, Canada's sustainable fishing policies. So here you have kind of a little bit of a win maybe on tariffs, but p potentially some significant costs that could completely undermine the sustainability of our already uh, troubled uh, fish fisheries in Atlantic Canada. You, you mentioned procurement. We're, we're talking basically about challenging them in court, right? We, we aren't forbidding locals from you know putting out tenders, and but you know ultimately, if a, a, a I guess a municipal government or a school or uh, academic or, or some other subnational government uh, puts out a tender, and you get you know a, a foreign a European corporation that's bidding and, and puts out a better bottom line did, bid, that that can. Uh, um, that they, they have the ability to sue, correct? It, we'll have to see what the, the dispute process looks like. It's probably going to be taking place through the courts. It'll be different than this investor state dispute settlement process, which does allow companies to directly sue the government. But um, there are still going to be implications for cities. So we know that in terms of figures on goods and services purchases by municipalities, Anything over $300,000 is going to be covered. So that means you cannot prefer local or Canadian goods when you make those purchases. And when on construction projects, that's going to be about $8 million, which when you think about it, when you're building a school, you're building a new transit system, that's not a lot of money. Um, everything's going to be covered. Essentially, 80% of the value of all Canadian procurement, uh, which is the money they spend on well, the money our cities spend, right, to operate, to provide services, 80% of the value is going to be covered by CETA. So that's considerable. That means that on the big purchases, you're no longer going to be allowed to put on local content requirements, local hiring rules, or uh, require some kind of economic development. They consider that an illegal uh, offset in these agreements. Now, there's going to be exceptions for transit from the look of it, and this was something that was very important to cities. But um, apart from that, we're going to lose the right to, potentially we're going to lose the right to buy local food, for example, like a hospital that wants to increase uh, the amount of food in the cafeteria that's being served to patients that's local. That could be, uh, is very easily challengeable under these new CETA rules. So that's the lay of the land. That's what's going to change. Um, there's anecdotal evidence from Alberta and British Columbia, that this process, which they've experienced through an interprovincial trade agreement called TILMA, it's now called the New West Partnership, um, has been very frustrating for cities at that level. It's created a glut of bids. Um, it's created a fear among some cities that they have to choose the cheapest bid or else they're going to get taken to court. So you're creating administrative costs for the cities. You're not necessarily um, improving the quality of the bids at all. I mean, Canada has an open procurement system already. And uh, you may be just making things worse. In fact, this is the European Union's experience under their own, what they call a procurement directive, which is basically does the same thing that CETA does for their cities in Europe. It says you cannot prefer local goods. You can't put on, you can't use public spending to encourage local development. And they're actually rethinking that right now within the European Union because it's been so burdensome for, uh, for cities and for, and for state governments as well. So I think it's kind of strange that here we have this very top-down, one-size-fits-all 
public spending restriction that we're going to be agreeing to in, in the EU deal when almost no other country in the world applies those rules to their municipalities because they know that you know, public spending is a valuable way to encourage uh, local job creation and sustainable development. But also when the European Union is turning its back on this model because it can see that it's overly burdensome. Now, uh, we have a Harper... The Harper government has been pushing the idea of Canada as an energy superpower, and so we've seen uh, a lot of energy directed towards pipelines, fracking, uh, tar sand, uh, development of the tar sands, mining, and other sorts of resources, uh, extraction industries like that. How does CETA work in, in conjunction? In many ways, the CETA is like NAFTA in that respect. I mean, NAFTA wiped out our ability to have a sustainable energy policy. All it does is promote exports as quickly as possible onto the market of oil, gas, and our resources. So CETA is just an elaboration extension of that, that mentality. It's going to have these investor rules that will allow Canadian energy companies, fracking companies, to sue European countries if there is a, a moratorium, for example, placed on, on hydraulic fracturing. But uh, more importantly, it's, it's not going to have any protections in this deal for for climate measures from the looks of it. So we know Canada's been lobbying the European Union, <coughs> excuse me, Canada's been lobbying the European Union to avoid putting into place a, uh, a fuel quality directive, which is designed to reduce the climate emissions from fuel. We have spent two years and hundreds of thousands of dollars lobbying against this policy. And we know that the Harper government has threatened to sue Europe um, under the WTO if the policy goes through um, in a way that would limit tar sands opportunities in the European market. So we know that Harper sees these agreements not as necessarily, you know, uh, he sees these agreements as tools, as, as tools that corporations and the government can use to undermine climate measures in other countries. Um, and there's nothing in CETA that is going to be good for sustainable development, that's going to be good for the environment. There's no way to hold companies accountable. There's no way to use CETA to enhance our standards, so we're actually applying higher European standards on, on labeling of food, on environmental protections, uh, on, on regulation of toxic chemicals, for example, where it's all much stronger in the European Union. In fact, Harper sees this deal as a way to remove those better, uh, undermine those better rules in the European side. Um, and that, uh, that's something that we have to bring out, I think, more and more over the next year is to show the real links between this Harper trade agenda and his energy agenda, his dirty energy agenda. What kind of impacts would a, a ratified CETA have in terms of uh, other trade agreements like NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Well, CETA is going to be, um, as, as Scott Sinclair at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has written uh, in an article just a few days ago, CETA is not the be-all and end-all, right? This is just the beginning of some of the changes Canada is going to be asked to make to its public policies. CETA is just simply one wave, and there's a tsunami kind of behind it, uh, which is the TPP. So um, I think it's something that we're going to have to think about this year as trade justice activists, is how do we how do we bridge, bridge these two agreements? So we have the TPP happening with the Pacific region, and we have CETA happening with across the Atlantic. Um, and the, as I said, the overall effect is simply to be, is going to be to completely pull the government out of the regulation of the economy, out of the distribution of wealth. This is, this is basically a tsunami for the 1%, a whole new set of rules that is going to make it easier for corporations to make money 
uh, it's just this is, these are trade deals for the 1%. So we have to be able to talk about that with Canadians, I think, to say we have to focus on fighting CETA because it's come at us first, but let's not lose, picture, uh, lose the bigger picture, which is that all of these deals um, simply enhance corporate power, enhance corporate profits. They don't produce jobs. They're going to actually leave our communities and our society much weaker than it was uh, before they existed. Now, it seems to me that the provinces, I mean, certain areas uh, should be ju provincial jurisdiction. I mean, we're talking about the procurement aspect or health, you know, drug costs, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, are there not uh, political mechanisms, if not legal mechanisms, to prevent this from being, from cramp, from restricting what provincial governments sh should have autonomy over? One of the things the Council of Canadians and, and its friends with the Trade Justice Network are going to be doing over the next little while is really pushing the provinces to hold public reviews on this deal, the deal in principle, the text, whatever. We need a chance to see it. We need a chance to review how it's going to affect the provinces, um, how it's going to affect public services in the provinces and some of the areas where they have jurisdiction, and then to change or even reject it if, if it's not found to be in the public interest. We think this is a completely rational call because, you know, the provinces, this agreement, as you said, this agreement is going to have pronounced effects on the constitutional powers of the provinces. Um, this is why I think you see all this talk of look at the benefits to, you know, beef farmers in, in Manitoba, look at the benefits to the fisheries. I think in a way these are, these are trying to divert the attention from the significant constraints that are going to be put on provinces in terms of providing services that are under their jurisdiction, control over resources, um, and that's at the municipal level as well, how municipalities spend money. So we think there has to be a review at the provincial level. Um, there's been no real consultation at that level because of there's been just this blanket of confidentiality and secrecy around it. Um, and so what we're going to be pushing for, especially in Manitoba, also Ontario, British Columbia, is a review. Um, because once the deal is signed, that's it. There's no way to, to change it. It's going to apply to the provinces uh, permanently. A question about uh, resistance within Europe. Um, is there any, and how successful is it likely to be? There's resistance in all, all kinds of ways in Europe to this EU deal. Perhaps it's not as uh, pronounced as it has been in Canada, but they are very concerned about the investment protections in particular. They're looking at the effect that NAFTA has had on Canada's public policy. We've been sued 30 times under NAFTA. We've lost several important cases or settled with corporations in cases where they were challenging environmental measures. Um, there's a case right now from Lone Pine Resources challenging a moratorium on fracking in Quebec and they want $250 million because they see the fracking moratorium as an expropriation of their profits. And that's exactly what these treaties like CETA, like NAFTA, are designed to protect companies from. They say you know, we have a right to regulate, but you're going to have to pay for that right. You have to pay the companies when you want to protect the environment. And so in Europe, they're looking at this and saying, hang on, there's a lot of big energy companies in North America, a lot of them based in Canada. They're looking to invest in fracking in France and Poland and Greece. They're trying to build mines in Romania, gold mines that are fiercely opposed by the people uh, in Romania. And they're seeing that the seat is going to be a tool to undermine uh, those policies. And so there's a lot of pushback in that area. A majority of, I think most, actually all of the left-leaning groups in the European Parliament oppose investor-state dispute settlement. There's a good chance they would vote against an agreement that had it in there. 
We also see opposition among some members of the European Parliament to Canada's WTO lawsuit against the European ban on, on seal products. They feel this is very important to them in Europe, that, that they are able to do this. Um, and yet Canada has challenged it at the WTO, and Europe is saying, you've got to pull out of that challenge or we're not going to approve this deal. We could see that become more important, a more important fight as we get closer to the, the vote in Europe. And we also, of course, have concerns among Bulgaria and Romania around Canada's visas for people from those countries. They might vote against a deal at the state level uh, that, that if Canada doesn't get rid of their visas. Um, and so there's a lot of you know, areas like that. Oh, final one, a huge one, is this, this sustain, that, what do they call a strategic partnership agreement that's going to be negotiated alongside of the EU trade deal. Canada's actually resisting a line in this deal that says if one side or the other is found violating human rights, the other side can suspend the trade benefits to that country that are in CETA. And the Harper government says this is an unreasonable in, impingement on their sovereignty. It undermines Canadian sovereignty. Sovereignty to do what? Sovereignty to upset, to, you know, to hurt human rights. Um, and so it's completely unbelievable to a lot of people in the European Union that, that we have Canada resisting this. But I think it does fit with the Harper government's overall mentality, which is that trade comes first, investment comes first, the tar sands come first, mining comes first, no matter where it's happening. And there's no way that they want human rights uh, to interfere with the, that flow of, of money and, and minerals. Um, and I think that could become very problematic uh, in the European Union if Harper doesn't agree uh, to include that kind of language. It's very simple. I mean, it's in all other European Union trade deals. They have this line, however effective or non-effective it is, um, saying that human rights are important. Um, and Harper's saying, well, they're not as important as this trade deal. So it does sound that there is some uh, opposition in Europe. Okay, um, so it, Canada signed on to this uh, agreement, and uh, so what, what kind of timelines are we dealing with here uh, for uh, uh, your, your group and affiliated groups uh, to uh, mobilize a resistance that might turn the tide? Well, there's, there's different ways to see the timeline. So I think very quickly um, we have to be approaching the provinces and asking to see this deal and have a public review. There's a precedent for this. Um, in, in Saskatchewan, for example, they reviewed the Tilma Agreement with Alberta and British Columbia, um, and they did public hearings, and they found that it was not in the best interest of the province. And, and this is the model we want to use um, in Manitoba and other provinces. And I think that has to happen as soon as possible. We expect the negotiations to finish, because let's keep in mind that this is just a deal in principle. It's just a few political uh, agreements in certain areas. It's not the text. We expect the text in between two to four months. That's when the province is expected. Um, we might get leaked copies before that, so we'll be making those publicly available when we get them. Um, and then ratification, the total length of ratification could take up to or even more than 18 months, and that's in Canada and the European Union. Um, there will be a Canada-European Union summit at some point next year, likely in Canada, and that's where they're going to have the big ceremonial signing of the actual agreement, and that's when it will be posted to the government website officially. We don't know when that's going to happen. It could be spring, summer, fall. We don't know. Um, but that we're going to see as a, as a rallying point for us um, to really have a show of force against this agreement. 
Um, but in the meantime, we're going back to the cities. We're going back to municipalities and saying, you have not been excluded from this deal. You are requesting to be excluded. It's going to have huge impact on your ability to, to promote jobs, pr to promote sustainable development. Um, you have to be talking to the provinces. We're going to be going to the provinces and saying, you have a responsibility to review this with the people and to give them some role in whether or not you're going to approve it or not. Um, and those are that's going to take up a lot of time, and uh, we're really we're really going to be pushing that over the next four months. Now, um, just briefly, I wonder if you wanted to comment a little bit, uh, because come January, that will mark the 20th anniversary of the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement. So um, are there going to be any kinds of memorials, retrospectives, anything along those lines that uh, Canadians can look forward to? There's a few things being planned. Many organizations um, that were traditionally uh, involved in Mexico, United States, and in, and in Canada in the fight against NAFTA are looking at uh, are planning several uh, events. There will be events in Canada as well that are being organized for the early parts of the year. Um, I think more importantly, it's an opportunity for us to talk about NAFTA because curiously absent from the discussion on CETA has been what the impact of NAFTA has been on Canada. We simply get a single line saying it was unambiguously positive for Canada. Let's move on. Let's keep signing deals like, like this with the European Union. It's taken as an axiom. Exactly, exactly. If you oppose NAFTA, you're, you're considered your opinions don't matter to the mainstream. Uh, a lot of mainstream columnists, and especially the Harper government, is the line they're trying to spread. But in fact, I think people are starting to realize that the past 20 years, which is how old we have had NAFTA, past 30 years perhaps, um, you know, have we seen, have, have these agreements helped us uh, mitigate the effects of climate change? No. We've seen runaway emissions from added trade. We've seen um, basically a freeze on public services in Canada. They've been, as they've been progressively undermined, our healthcare system, for example, progressively undermined by privatization. Um, we've seen jobs disappear in important sectors in Canada as we're now, I think 25% of our economy is now dependent on resources. This is taking Canada back. The free trade regime, the, the free trade era has taken Canada back to a time when we were a resource exporter. It's undone years of trying to build up industrial, innovative industries in, in the country. Yeah, the whole like, hewers of wood, haulers of water line, uh, that, it's actually, that, that was a warning in the lead up to the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement. And I guess they, you feel at least that they, that's been justified. I think, I don't see how you could, <laughs> I don't think how you could deny it. I mean, uh, progressively we've been moving toward resources, some of these raw, raw resources, agricultural products as the basis of our economy. And they've always been to some extent the basis. But since, you know, post-World War II, there's been so many efforts in Canada to actually try and improve the overall balance of the economy, try and build up a manufacturing sector, innovative manufacturing. And in fact, what these agreements have done is undermine the ability of governments to do that, take away their ability to support new industries, to create new, to create new innovative industries. So uh, on the same time, we've seen wages, right? I mean, everyone knows that the 1% is getting richer and, and income disparity in Canada has exploded over the past 20 years. And I don't see how we can talk about trade agreements without recognizing these facts, that there's so many problems that we have to address, including how unfairly and unequally income is being distributed in this era, that we can't simply say seed is going to be good. You know, like that's really the level of debate or discussion we're getting from this government. And a lot of media pundits, CETA is good, way to go Harper, this is the best thing he's ever done. 
Don't worry that he's been, you know, uh, trying to steal elections. Don't worry that he's gutting the environmental legislation, making it, you know, forget about all that. This kind of makes it all better because everyone should agree this is a good deal. I, I don't think we can accept that. Do you have any thoughts about why the, the media, in your view, has been as uncritical as it has been? Well, I, um, I mean, there's probably a few answers. One, it was a masterful spin job, I think, from the Harper government on Friday, talking about, uh, you know, the window dressing, right? Talking about fish, talking about beef, talking about cheese. How can, we, how can we be opposed to more beautiful European cheese on our market? You know, how can we be opposed to paying less money for Mercedes? I don't know. I really don't know who's being impressed by these arguments in a way because they do seem to deal with products that are mostly consumed by a, a certain class. Um, but, but it has been very successful, this idea that, uh, that free trade, uh, you know, at the same time, the idea that free trade is unambiguously good for the Canadian economy is, is very much the public opinion. Um, you know, we recognize that we have a battle here. We have a battle for public opinion. Um, since the NAFTA, since the free trade deal with the United States in 1988, um, where most people were opposed to free trade, it, we're now at the point where, despite the evidence, um, most people are supportive of free trade. Um, and so we have to be convincing people about the many ways, you know, that this is not about trade, that this deal is actually about, you know, perfecting the legal architecture of corporate power. Uh, making it easier, again, as we said, basically making it easier to make profits, um, making it more difficult to redistribute wealth, more difficult to protect the environment and reduce our climate emissions. That's the fight we have in the next year, is a fight uh, to change public opinion on what these deals are uh, and whether or not they're good for Canada. I guess on that note, we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, Stuart Trudeau, I want to thank you very much for your, uh, those, that analysis and your insights. And uh, I wish you... Uh, more room in, in the uh, broadcast spectrum to air those thoughts because I think they are very important to get out there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. For more information on these corporate trade deals, please consult www.citizenstrade.org slash ctc www.citizen.org slash tpp www.flushthetpp.org and www.canadians.org You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.